What's your favorite way to learn? I like graphic novels because I can see who's talking. My grandma reads the newspaper to me. I like movies on TV. I play learning games on my dad's tablet. I like reading plain old regular books with lots of detail. This is Worlds Awaiting, helping children read, write, see, speak, think, and listen. Here's our host, Rachel Wadham. I'm Rachel Wadham, and welcome to Worlds Awaiting, helping children and parents explore the world of literacy. Today, we'll be exploring the worlds of spirituality, storytelling, and books. First, we'll talk with the author Ariane de Beauvoisin about spirituality and how important it is for children. Then we'll talk with Randy Evanson about his experience as a storyteller. After that, we'll talk with Mark Pullum about finding the right book. Before we leave, we'll step around the librarian's table with librarians from around Utah to talk about literacy, children, and life. Along with our interviews, we'll have story time with Binky the Space Cat by Ashley Spires, and we'll hear from some teachers at Wasatch Elementary. But before all that, let's head into my world. Rachel's In almost any report you read that details what skills employers want from potential employees, teamwork and communication skills are almost always at the top. The Partnership for 21st Century Learning agrees when it lists the ability to work effectively in diverse teams as one of the life and career skills that will help future workers navigate work environments in the information age. The partnership further details that these skills should include the ability to work with a range of people from different social, economic, and cultural backgrounds. This also includes the ability to listen and respond civilly to different ideas and values, and to leverage these different values to create innovative solutions to problems. Like many other social and emotional literacies that we have talked about here at Rachel's World, the reality is that these skills are best learned in practice. This means that kids need to work on teams and to be on teams in a variety of different ways before they enter the workforce. This is one of the reasons that I advocate for children's participation in group activities, including sports groups or even music groups. I know that my own time as a member of an orchestra and a band was one of those skill-building childhood experiences that gave me the ability to make beautiful music in my workplace, even when I'm not playing any type of instrument. So a good place to start is to get a child on a team or to put them into a musical ensemble. These are places where teamwork skills can begin to build. But the reality is we also don't even have to go outside of our own homes. Working together as a family can help build teamwork skills. Diverse personalities, even in the same family, can build experience. So working together on home chores or doing a craft project together or playing a board game as a family is a great way to build the foundational skills of teamwork. So no matter what path you take, now's the time to start thinking about ways to help our children learn how to be part of a team. Because when they enter the workforce, their employers are going to be very grateful that the kids learn these skills when they were young. Rachel's World. When working with children, it is important to take a holistic approach. We are just not concerned about their mental and physical growth, but we're also concerned about their emotional and spiritual growth. Today, we're on the phone with author Ariane de Beauvoisin to talk about just that. Welcome, Ariane. Thanks, Rachel. It's so good to be on the show. 
We are so excited to have you because you bring such a unique perspective to our show today. You are an author of some very unique books that approach the world and the way we interact with the world in a very unique way. And I'd like my audience to hear from your own mouth about what you perceive your books to be and your approach. So tell us a little bit about your books. So I have just released into the world a trilogy of kids' books um, called Giggles and Joy. The first is called Giggles and Joy. The second is You Are Loved. And the third is Being You. And the subtitle of the book is really what's creating more of the, the conversation I find. The subtitle is called Spiritual Life Lessons for Kids. And I think it's urgent. I wouldn't even say important. I think it's urgent right now to realize that kids surely have a mind, they surely have a body, but they really also have a spirit. And I feel like education right now and even parenting is so much focused above the neck and, you know, creating sort of these brilliant children who do really well at school and who fit into the world. And I feel like what needs to happen is that we need to remember that these children have, you know, a heart and a spirit and a soul and a calling and, to align them with that part of them, to get them back into their bodies, to get them back into the feeling body and the emotions that are so important for children to be allowed to feel. You know, I, I, a lot of people ask me, you know, well, how do they work in terms of religion? They're, they're not religious, but they are, they coexist beautifully next to all types of faiths, all types of religions. I've worked with parents who are, you know, very much on a, on a specific religious path and they love these books. They're more of a, an addition to it. They're more of, you know, the, the Gandhi, Mother Teresa, Nelson Mandela, Dalai Lama, that, that you would want to bring up your children with these kind of values. You make such a wonderful point there, because I think a lot of times when we speak of spirituality, it gets so often connected with religion that a lot of people reject it, particularly when we talk about teaching it in schools and these types of things. When we talk about teaching some of these emotional skills in schools, when it gets too connected with religion, it becomes... It becomes something that people don't want to engage with. And that's one of the things I love about your books is that, that they embrace this sense of the spirit and finding who you are and finding that joy and that emotional place from one of those places that can be used in a lot of different ways. Mm -hmm. And I appreciate that you've taken such care in doing that. As you created these books, what other points, what other kinds of issues did you feel like you really wanted to address as you as you wrote them? Yeah, you know, I really wanted to create something that was universal, that wasn't divisive, that wasn't, I'm right, you're wrong, I think this, you think that, I parent this way, you parent that way. I, I didn't want to create anything else that kind of split people apart into groups or camps. And I, I wanted to sort of see what was common, see what was true and good and beautiful in all parenting or all the way, you know, we would want all our children to to learn and be and exist on the planet. You know, I wanted to look for themes, you know, whether there's eight life skills in, in each of the books, so 24 total, you know, things like how do you teach them kindness and not only kindness towards other people, which is an obvious one, but self-kindness, because kids grow up to be very kind sometimes to others, but then they beat themselves up and they're self-critical and they judge themselves and they don't feel good enough. And then we raise another generation of kids and teenagers 
who have forgotten that, you know, the love of themselves, the love of their spirit, the love of their own sort of path is actually what's going to accompany them for life. They are stuck with themselves for life. You know, I looked at gratitude. I looked at intuition and teaching children the power of intuition. I mean, most parents have never mentioned the word intuition to their kids. And yet allowing kids to feel like they have something within them that is self-reliant. It doesn't depend on their parents being around forever or together or their teachers being around. They have something within them that also they can go to and rely on. You know, how, how do you teach children diversity? How do you teach them um, to be okay with being sad or mad? You know, these they're not emotions necessarily that we think of, well, how do I parent children through those things? So to me, I was looking at, you know, what is what is common within childhood? And, you know, my, my path has been to, to sort of make parents realize that by the age of six or seven, children have made so many conclusions, not only about the world, but especially about themselves and who they are and what they are and what they're capable and also what they're not and what they, you know, cannot do. So I think the earlier, you know, these books are, I'd say for like two to seven year olds, the earlier we can remind them of their beauty, remind them that there's nothing for them to do or be or change or perform to be worthy and to exist and to get love. And we're in a, we're in a culture and education that values performance and values comparison and values competition. And there's an antidote to that. And my hope is that this book is a little bit of a soothing balm for parents. I think sometimes, too, you you mention how we need to teach this to children. And I think sometimes one of the things we forget is sometimes these types of experiences or understanding how we feel or understanding what intuition is or how we relate to the world as individuals isn't necessarily something we just pick up, but it has to be something that's explicitly taught. And I, I really appreciate with your books that there's that sense of explicitly teaching these things to help us talk through them and help us work through these items to help us kind of gain this kind of emotional intelligence, emotional literacy that we're looking at. Did you do that on purpose? Did you want it to be much more explicit than maybe some other kinds of context would be? I did because, you know, so many times, especially when in the context of things being spiritual, people think, oh, spiritual isn't very practical. Spiritual isn't being in the world. Spiritual isn't about, you know, having a bad day or making money or or whatever it is. And it's sort of seen as sort of this fuzzy thing that's not integrated into the world. So I wanted to be very specific. You know, one of the poems is about having a bad day. And giving children permission to have a bad day and be grumpy and be in a bad mood, which is not something that we often allow children to be. And for kids to realize that grown-ups have bad days. You know, there's a life skill in there around understanding grown-ups. Um, there's the life skill around change and adaptability skills, because we know that our kids are going to go through a lot of change. But how do you teach your child to navigate change? It's, it's hard enough for a, a grown-up to go through change. You know, we all, we all hate change, so we just hope our kids are going to be okay. So there are ways to make change easier. There are ways to give an environment to a child that feels safe, you know, in a world that feels quite unsafe where parents are like, you know, this world is messed up. I'm not quite sure how to protect my child from it. And the invitation is, well, if you create safety within their world, which is where it starts, they will start to see safety around them. So I wanted to be very explicit. You know, we teach kids about how to breathe and how to get back into their body. When kids are misbehaving, a lot of the times they're just not breathing anymore. They're just, they're out, they're out of their bodies. So how do you get them back in? 
And what I've heard from parents, you know, I coach parents, I've done workshops with parents is, is sort of giving them things where at the end of the day, when parents, you know, are exhausted and they've beaten themselves up and they don't think they're a good parent is to give them something that for in two pages, they can have a, a really important conversation with their child. These are great in terms of emotional development and but also building intimacy with your child's inner world which goes beyond just you know how was your day which a child doesn't have the language to even talk about that I really appreciate that you speak to parents quite frequently and that seems to me the approach that you took with these books that they aren't necessarily for kids just to consume by themselves although they easily could be but they really are meant to be a collaborative thing where parents and kids are sitting down together and having these discussions around that book am I am I yeah. interpreting that approach correctly yeah. And, you know, I, I've I've told parents because parents are like, you know, what do I do? Do I just read four poems in a row? And I, I there's a couple of things. One, sometimes depending on the age of the kid, I let the kid choose because you'll be amazed. They usually go for the poem they need or the poem they want their parents to understand. So they will gravitate naturally to a poem and either whether it's from the illustrations or even just from the energy that's that's coming off the page. Um you know, for me with parents, uh, the invitation of parents is A, to stop being so hard on yourself and to stop, you know, imagining that you need to be perfect because one of the biggest messages your child or children need to hear is it's okay to make mistakes and it's okay to not be perfect and it's okay to lower the bar of what's expected. And then, you know, just I would call it humanity skills. Like we need to just give ourselves permission to be human. And that's something I really wanted to come out of these books as well. I think we all need to hear that. I, I wouldn't agree. I couldn't agree more. I think we all need to hear that. And I love the sense that these humanity skills that you're talking about really are first developed in the home and with a mother and a father or some other caring adult that's caring for you in your life. And when we see the great people that you mentioned earlier, a lot of the reasons they became who they were was because of these caring adults that played a yeah. role in their lives. And, yeah. and having that facility to use these books to do that, I think is wonderful. Yeah. And, you know, you look at something like the skill of forgiveness, like how, how do you teach a three, four, five, six year old about forgiveness? Like literally, like when I ask people that they just stare at me and they go, well, I don't, I don't really know. So I wanted to have a specific poem about letting go about forgiveness, about the, the word sorry and what it means and what it means between two people and what happens when you don't say sorry and, and how, how quickly you can forgive. And I think giving a child a tool to recover from bad behavior or from, you know, knowing that it's done something wrong. Like most parents focus on the discipline and what do I do when my child's misbehaving? I'd like to focus on once that's done, how does the child get invited back in, in a very loving, fair you know, accepting, responsible, but also very forgiving place. That's so wonderful. I really appreciate your focus on these books. And I'm sure that our listeners out there are going to be very interested to now go out and get your books. So remind us again, the titles of your books and tell us how we would go about getting them. So the, there's three books, Giggles and Joy, You Are Loved and Being You. You can try one book or look at the themes that are discussed in one book, or you can get all three, which of course I highly recommend. Um, there's 24 in total. They are available as a gift set right now on Amazon. And just more information about what's covered in the books, um, the website is giggleshandjoy.com. And there's lots of parents, lots of 
child therapists, uh, Oprah's parenting coaches endorse them. We've been, we've been very fortunate with people who really know about child development and even like neuroscientists that know like the impact on children of why, why we need to teach these young. Thank you so much. And we will put the link to the website up on our show page there. So you can go to that as well and and get more information on these amazing books. Thank you so much for sharing your own spirit with us today and helping us to see truly how this deep inner life is so important for our children. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for the opportunity to share. Ariane is the author of Spiritual Children's Books, and it has been so wonderful to have her with us today. Stories are so important for the growth of our children. Telling and listening to stories help them to develop their imagination in crucial ways. Let's take a listen to a story about a cat who wants to go into outer space. So now it's story time with Binky the Space Cat by Ashley Spires. If you are a fan of Star Trek, if you spend a lot of time watching cat videos on the internet, or if you feel a deep sense of duty to fulfill your calling in life... I have the book for you. This book is called Binky the Space Cat by Ashley Spires. If you are not into any of those things, then this may be the gateway you need to discover your love for space exploration and protective and diligent kitties. So it opens up on the arrival of a very important-looking envelope. Within it is a letter from F-U-R-S-T. For those of you unfamiliar with international cat organizations, This is the felines of the universe ready for space travel. And it is an acceptance letter. It's for Binky because he is now a space cat. He has an official space badge and a purpose. Before now, Binky has never left his home slash space station. As an ordinary cat, it's far too dangerous. But now, with his space cat introduction package, he is ready to build his spaceship, go out into the unknown, and defeat space aliens. To the untrained eye, they may seem to be ordinary houseflies, but with diligent scientific research, Binky confirms that they are indeed aliens. So up to this point, it has been Binky's duty to care for his humans. He has a big human and a little human, and he reads up frequently on the care and keeping of them. He greets them when they come home, he gives them back scratches, he gives many, many snuggles, but most importantly, he protects them from the menacing aliens. He takes this responsibility very seriously. But now he is a space cat, and it is time for him to explore beyond the comforts of his oxygenated space station and go where no cat has gone before. Should you choose to read Binky the Space Cat, you will discover, with Binky, how one fulfills their space cat duties. Prepare yourself, because some choices are not all black and white. There is a playful and creative use of images and words to tell the story of Binky in this unexpectedly entertaining graphic novel. It's not a book you give to the kids when you need to get the dishes done or take a quick cat nap. You'll want to read it with them and then reread it after they go to bed so you don't have to battle for a good view of the pictures. The illustrations are quirky and use a beautiful contrast of neutral and bright colors. The personality of Binky will capture your heart. The humor is simple and organic. As a graphic novel, it is easy to read. You can explore it with the youngest of readers with middle schoolers. You might even take it on your girls' or boys' night out and enjoy a good laugh with them as well. If you have not yet developed a love for graphic novels, this is an excellent book to start with. And now, a word to cat owners. If you are not already enticed to follow the story of Binky, know that you will have a particularly deep connection with the reality of a cat's responsibility to their humans. 
You will also appreciate this insight into what cats do when you're not looking and why they do what they do. Undoubtedly, you will fall in love with Binky, his mousy toy Ted, and his humans. But fret not, there is a whole series of Binky adventures. Once you read this one, you will be inspired to fulfill your duty, whether you are a big human, a little human, or a space cat. We all have our place in the world, and Binky will certainly help you find yours. Stories are an integral part of what it means to be human. From the time we're small, we learn to tell stories. Much of what we communicate is told through stories. But there is so much more to storytelling than that. Today we're in studio with storyteller and educator Randy Evanson to explore the concept of storytelling. Welcome, Randy. Thank you very much. To start out today, tell us a little bit about why storytelling is so important to you. I think stories help us understand who we are. And not only does it tell us who we are, but it connects us to other people and it connects us to ourselves. And and if we don't know who we are, uh, then I think we flounder in life. And, and I think we need to know who we are as a people and who we are as an individual. And it's the stories that connect us to ourselves and to other people. That foundation of it's our identity is is such a wonderful way to look at it, that these stories are foundational to who we are in, in our very individual identities. So can you describe for us how that defines you? How does that how does storytelling for you define your own identity? Well, uh, it, it helps me understand that that I am a storyteller, that that I am uh, a dad, that I am a husband, that that I have certain characteristics that I need to to share and and help my my children and other people around me understand that and and share those. I need to share my gifts, and I need to share those with other people, and I I share those through stories, and people have to look beyond beyond the the obvious and see it through the stories. Describe that a little bit more for me. I I love that sense of seeing beyond the obvious, but what do you mean by that? What what does a story help us see that isn't quite so obvious? Well, you know, we're kind of arrogant when we come out and say, you know, (laughs) I am this. But if I can tell it through a story, then people can, can see and they and they can begin to understand and and they enjoy it when it comes through a story and, and it's just as much it's much more pleasant when you tell it through a story and you talk about yourself through a story or through an experience you've had and then they can begin to relate oh i understand because i've had that experience too i understand how you feel because i've had that experience and they can begin to relate i i can tell them about a time that that i got in trouble and they say oh yeah I know what that's like. Or a time I've been afraid. I know what that feels like. And then they begin to understand me because they've had similar experiences like that. 
that connection piece of it, you start out saying, you know, it's about me and identifying me, but then you move to this sense of it's about me connecting with other people. Yes. So there's, I love this balance that it's identifying us, but then it's also identifying how we connect with other people. Right. So particularly as you tell stories, I know you do it in a more professional context. You go to festivals right. and you tell stories in that context. How does that help you connect with other people? What what does the storytelling do to kind of strengthen that interpersonal bond that you have with other people? Well, people all people have had a myriad of experiences, but they'll always say, uh, "I would love to tell stories, but I don't have any." And when <laughs> it's I, like, no, not true. Everybody that, has that's stories. Exactly <laughs> right. And and I will begin to tell an experience and. About, for example, when I've been in trouble, and we've all, all, all of us have been in trouble, and then as soon as I, I, I start telling this, they'll say, "Oh yeah," in their mind they they say, "Oh yeah, I I've had that very, I I haven't had, I did not climb up a tree and throw tomatoes at cars like you did, but I did this." And and that is the same kind of thing, and my mom she didn't like that as well, so so I understand, and and it helps me understand who I am as well, and it helps me understand them, and and we bond immediately. I didn't even have a chance to talk to them, but they understand me, and I understand them, and and we finish the story, and they come up, and it's almost like they want to give me a hug, and I want to give <laughs> them a hug because we've had this mutual experience, and we and we understand each other right away. That foundation of this mutual experience, and it's a mutual experience of emotion and a yes. mutual experience of feeling, which... I don't think a lot of people realize how much we convey emotion through story and how much we convey our feelings through story. Right. Is that something that you try to do as you tell your stories to, to really tap into some of those universal emotions that everyone has to, to kind of build those connections? Yes. Everybody, everybody wants to laugh. Everybody wants, everybody feels sad. Everybody has been embarrassed and, and, when we sh- when we share those kind of feelings, then we say, "You're normal, I'm normal, and it's okay to have those experiences. It's okay to feel sad. It's okay to be embarrassed." Yeah. And that it's normal, and this kind of right. universal thing mm-hmm. really connects that. And even if the experiences are different, like you mentioned, you know, we all didn't throw tomatoes at cards. Now, that's a wonderful story. Right. <laughs> I'm very, very kind of intrigued by that one. You know, we all didn't do that, but we all got in trouble or we all did something wrong. Right. And that really connects us foundationally as humans in a right. very fundamental way. Do you see these kinds of storytelling then bridging gaps that you wouldn't necessarily think could be bridged between different types of people, different races, different cultures, different genders, different experiences? Exactly. I can have grown up in the 50s and and another experience where we're getting – a child can get in trouble in in the 2018 and and they connect with it just as well because they understand, oh, my mom didn't like that and your mom didn't like that. And we both felt the same. And so it bridges that, that, that gap is bridged. 
So we understand each other completely, even though it was over an entirely different experience. That is just amazing to me how they stories can do that. And I think foundationally, we all understand that uh-huh. as human beings, we all understand how important stories are. But I don't think we often articulate it. And so I'm grateful today that you're here articulating that real strong power that stories have to identify us and to connect us as human beings across lines, you know, even age lines um, that you were describing earlier. Why is it this then this something that you do? I mean, why what is your motivation for you to tell stories and in the more kind of professional context? How did how did you get here? What 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 made you start doing this? Well, I, I started well, I think I started as a kid. I even as a as a child. I, I think I, w- I would come home from school and, and my mom would say, How was your day? And I, and and I think I began to tell stuff to my mother, and she would say, are you stretching that? I didn't understand what she was talking about at the <laughs> moment. And as I grew up, I thought, I was telling her a story, and I was making it outlandish. And of course I was stretching it, but I didn't understand what she was talking about. And I was telling her a story because I didn't want to say, yeah, my day was just fine. I wanted to tell her a story. But so I think I was telling the stories from the time I was a, a small, small child. But I found that telling true stories was the, was by far the best, and and that came just by by sharing true stories later. The true stories are are by far the best. And when I began teaching school, I would share those experiences, and the kids would relate. And if ever, as a school teacher. Uh, I needed to to pull the kids in together. All I had to begin is begin whispering a story, and the the my classroom would just be captivated and quiet. And I learned that that was a way to um, bring everyone together. And and now I go about telling stories to in classrooms because I know that that connection needs to be made. I know kids need that. We live in a digital world, and and that connection still needs to be made. Oral language still needs to happen. And so I go about doing it, and I can sit with with 300 kids, and, and you can hear a pin drop because they still need to make that connection. And they'll, and they'll do it because oral language still needs to happen, and they'll make that connection. That is so beautiful. And I truly love how you articulate that. Because again, I just I don't think we often talk about it in this way. As we close up our conversation today, maybe give us a little tip for those that are those people that come up to you and say, Oh, I don't have any stories, or I'm not a storyteller. What is a way we can start making stories more integral to our own lives and our own experiences in uh even if we don't feel like, you know, we're a professional storyteller like you. How, how can we start doing that? Think about the people or places that your children will never, ever see or hear about or the people they may not know. For example, your first grade teacher, your children will probably never meet them. And you just want to begin telling them about them. And there are interesting things that will come to your mind about them. Or think about the home that you grew up in and just begin to tell them about them. And all of a sudden, there will be interesting things 
that you will find about your the home that you grew up in that you will they will just be fascinating to your children or your grandchildren. Just think about these. And these are just little tidbits. And before you know it, you will have a myriad of stories to tell. Just think about the places and people that your children or grandchildren will never have the opportunity to meet or go and tell them about it. Such a simple way to start with yeah. such power. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much, Randy. You I bet. appreciate your passion and love for stories. And I hope that some of that's rubbed off on our listening audience today. I hope so. <laughs> Thank you. You bet. Next for you, we sent Clara Goodwin of the World's Awaiting Team to talk with teachers from the Wasatch Elementary School about their students and classrooms. Let's take a listen. How do you implement reading in a classroom setting? I have read-alouds every day with my students. I pick some of my favorite authors to read and share with them, and I love to see their excitement. When we have library, they go right towards the author section. We pause in our read-alouds and talk about the book and really apply it to our lives and to things that happen in a third grader's everyday life. And so they can continue to read at home and at school and think, how does this apply in my life? Or when have I seen this before? And it continues to help them want to read. One thing we do is book club circles. The kids are assigned books of high interest and we have assignments assigned to their reading and analyzing the text and different assignments like that. But the kids really get to sit around and discuss elements of plot and elements of character development and really get into their books. Why is it important for kids to think reading is fun at a young age? Reading is fun at no matter what age you are, especially at a young age. It's habit and it's something they're going to carry with them through their whole life. At a young age, they go from learning to read to reading to learn, and you're a lifelong learner, and so reading is a fun way to continue to learn. Mostly, I think, just to build literacy to build a way to interpret the world. So they are building the tools, the pieces they need to walk through the world as a citizen and to contribute to the world around them through literacy. What advice do you have for kids who don't think reading is very fun? I would say pick a genre that you are interested in already. So if you love bugs and creepy crawlies, find science books. If you love make-believe fairy tales, you know, find those types of books that you are already interested in and then start there and then continue to read your favorites and then expand the genres. I would say go pick up Lewis Sacker's Wayside School is Falling Down. And if you don't think it's funny, to read about a little kid falling out a window and climbing up the ponytails of another little girl, then nothing will be funny for the rest of your life. What is your favorite book and why? My favorite book is The Book Thief by Marcus Susak, and I love that it's written in a different perspective. It's written by the character Death, and so it's not a person and it's not a place necessarily. It's an abstract narrator through the story, and I love the story that he tells of trial and of human hope and love. My favorite adulthood book is probably Barbara Kingsolver. She wrote The Poisonwood Bible and that's probably my favorite book because she writes every chapter from somehow manages to capture the vantage point of four daughters of varying ages and manages to do it very well. So I've always loved that book.
One of the biggest barriers for a child's progression in literacy can be the child's dislike for reading. However, if we find the right book for the child, a love of reading is sure to follow. Today, we're in studio with Mark Pullum, an educator and storyteller, to talk about how to fit kids and books. Welcome, Mark. Ah, thank you for having me. You know, one of the things as a librarian and a teacher that we well know is there's great things we do to help engage children with reading and not to focus on the negative, but there are some things that we do as teachers and librarians that kind of negate the love of reading in students. And I think sometimes if we are just aware of those things, we can we can better be familiar with how to help our students kind of overcome these challenges. So I know you and I share a pet peeve about mm. one of those negative things that teachers do. Oh. So let's talk about that. Being a teacher myself, I, I feel as if I could address this. And many times students will come with a list in their hand and they really were forced to come to the library. And then I will ask them, well, how can I help you? What are you looking for? Well, I have to find a historical fiction. Great. There's so many good historical fictions. What do you like reading? Well, it has to be about World War II. Well, there's some great books. Let's go find – and it has to be 150 pages. Well, here's a second grader, a third grader, trying to find the impossible task, a 150-page book. Um, a lot of times I think teachers think that page number is an indication of how good a book is. And I then my next question is, well, there are all of these wonderful books I could show you, but let's look for thick books first. It's no longer about the content of the book. It's about what book fits that requirement. And then we'll try to find a good book under that circumstance. And sometimes publishers, as you know, don't have – you know, they have certain pages. And 150 for a second grader or a, even a first grader isn't – you know, it isn't normal. It isn't feasible. So that's a, really a bit pet peeve that uh, a lot of times when teachers – give that assignment, you have to, all of a sudden, they have no voice in what they're reading, and it becomes a burden. And I think a lot of kids are discouraged in reading when they no longer have a choice in what they get to read, but they have to read it. And I think that's with all of us, you know, if we have to do something, we sometimes dread it more than, oh, I get to do something and I can have a, a little input on what I'm going to read. So that is one of my peeves. Yes, and I would agree with you there, putting these unrealistic constraints on it, and especially when there's other really great ways that we can do to not put those constraints on it. So in contrast to page numbers, what would you do to make the context that's needed for maybe an assignment, but yet give them the choice and other kinds of functional things that would be better to help students want to learn to read? Well, sometimes I will give them, give them a book that doesn't have the required page, but then I'll tell them, well, you can read that and this one. You could read two books plus this magazine that is devoted entirely to that subject. And they kind of give me that look, well, I don't know if my teacher is going to allow that. And I'll just say, well, try. And then if I have mom on, or dad on my side too, and they can say, yeah, that's, you know, that isn't right that a page number. I want him to read the best that's out there, not necessarily the longest. And so, and a lot of times you just have to make a compromise. And sometimes you can't. 
And so you give them the you give them the best book you can find that fits that requirement. And another thing, books are like time machines. Kids want to time travel. Hey, read that biography of Bill Peet or Lincoln or uh, you know uh, Nellie Bly. I loved her biography. And sometimes when you can catch that fire that actually reading is going to take you someplace that you've never even thought of going. I had to help um, kind of a teenage person with, you know, they come, you shouldn't judge a book by its cover or a patron by their cover. And I remember a mom coming with her daughter, which you could just see on her face, I don't want to read, mom. Don't make me do this. You know, she had that goth going on, the black fingernail polish and the kind of the I'm bored of everything look. And so she needed a book. And, you know, that's a daunting task if you try to find a book for someone that instantly shoots daggers at you when you're saying, can I help you? And she's just going, uh. So I showed her some books. And her mother says, well, she likes really depressing books, books that where the main character either is, is sick or dying or, and, you know, you, you usually want to have a happy book or at least a good ending. Well, there are some books where people have their trials and, and they get through them. And one of those books that is a go-to book for me that really made an impression was The Devil's Arithmetic by Jane Yolen. And the minute I pick the book up, inside I just – a turmoil uh, because I knew what she was going to experience. And I knew that a book – and see, I, I got kind of emotional when I was giving her a book and she probably looked at me and went, is this for real? What are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> Slap me over the face. But I knew what she was going to experience and I know that she was going to live that. Not just hear it from a lecture from the teacher, but she was going to go through the Holocaust. And so books do that. They can transport you. They can take you. She ended up taking that book and another book um, by Waylon, I think. It's about the homecoming. Anyway, it was a book about a young girl in India who had an arranged marriage and her husband dies. They knew he wasn't going to live. She was only a teenager and then she had that stigma of being classified in that class in India. Well, books can take us places where people can't and we see those movies in our own mind. We're the director of what we're going to see and glean from it. I think that's the problem I have with reading sometimes. I get too involved. As The f most fun I had teaching was right after lunch I would read and sometimes – we would read 15, then a half hour would pass, 45 minutes would pass, and I would feel guilty. I thought, we should be doing something else. But the kids wouldn't allow me to go on. And of course, I kind of have to read all the characters and do all the – and that's not necessary. Parents, anyone that's reading to, to a child, you don't have to do the voices and you don't – but it is fun to do for me. But the I think just hearing the words that someone has thought so hard about to write down and I really admire authors because the right word choice makes all the difference in the world. So those are some of the things. Yeah, well, and I know that you've had a chance to 
interact with a wide range of authors. And and one of the things that I just love about that is they're just so authentic and they're mm. just they're just doing something that they love and putting it out there for the world to see. So in your interactions with these authors, how, how do you think that they perceive their craft and and what are they offering to the world? Well, I think great authors do what they do because they love it. I remember the first one of the authors, Gail Carson Levine, or Levine, I forget. She told me what it was. She had just written Ellen Enchanted, and it was one of her first novels. And she was excited, and she was a rookie, and she loved this experience. Since then, she's gone on to some great books. But every time I give that book to a child or see them read, you know, I say, now that was a great person who loves writing and loves what she does. Uh, other authors that are just um, – down to earth. I don't think they do it to get rich at first. They do it because they love to do it. And they love what their books, where their books can, can take kids. And that's the authors that we usually have here at our conferences. Mary Downing Hahn, she was just this down to earth lady that just happens to write these scary ghost stories. And kids love them. And she, you know, just gives them what she likes, and then the kids do the rest. Yeah, and I think that's something that's so true about books and authors and this community that we build is the fact that we're just we're sharing something we love, and mm. and there's something so so deep and fundamental about what we love and what we do. So you've mentioned a couple of authors, but right now are there a couple of books that you that oh. you just love? I know I know this is the I know I, the, I wrote some down because I needed to <laughs> tell book you. Lovers. Yeah, tell I us. I just read a new book by Catherine Colville. Bruce Colville's wife. It's one of her first one. It's called Cottage in the Woods. And when I first started reading it, I thought, well, the the whole Three Bears thing caught me. And and then these bears that are talking, I thought, oh, I don't know. But as I read more, I fell in love with these bear characters. It was like Jane Eyre with bears. And she was a governess that came to teach the youngest bear whose name was Teddy. And I thought – and then there's this kind of mystery to it, this mystery person that you didn't know about. And it happened to be a little girl that was found in their house, and her name was Goldilocks. They had named her that. And then all of these other things add into the story, the enchantment of living with humans and bears. And, and I just fell in love with this book, and it was a thick book. I don't read a lot of thick books because, you know, that's a lot of time. But I did finish it, and I just – it was one of those books you just go, ah, now I know about the old lady that lives in the shoe and how really rotten she was to all those kids that she had nothing to do with all these. And it was just a joy. And I think books take you to those places, and you've got to just discover them. And I really like that one. I've just read that recently. I'm also reading a book by Matt de la Peña. He writes a teen – you know, he run the Newberry. But he has a sequel to a book I had read called The Living, which is The Hunted, which says, boy, this is a teen scary book. And I'm just normal, you know, working with the kids' books. But there's – and Brian Selznick's book, The Marvels, I'm reading right now. It's one book that I feel really good about because – I was to 300 pages and I hadn't read a word yet. And that's how his books are, you know, like Hugo and Cabaret and some of those. So I'm just enjoying my time with books. That is so wonderful to hear. I think that there's just so many things that can open up this 
this new world to us and and help us to see things in a different way. So as we wind down today, what what's just one thing that you think that our listening audience should remember about about our conversation today? What what is that one essence of this that you think is important to pull out? I, I think take time to read and make time to read. For years, I haven't had the time and I didn't take the time, but it's not going to happen magically. You've got to make time to read. I would agree. That's the one thing I tell people. They say, how do you read so much? And I say, well, I make the time. And it's amazing how much time, you know, if you carry a book with you or mm-hmm. something like that, you can pull out those snatches of moments to immerse yourself in, in this glorious world. Yeah. I went to the gym. Hey, great. I went to my book, too. You know? <laughs> yeah. It's going to have to be part of our daily routine. I love that. I think... The more we make it that, the better off we're going to be as a society and our children will be. Great way to end. Thanks so much, Mark. You're welcome. Mark Pullum is an educator puppeteer, and he works at the Orem Public Library. Now, before I leave you, we're going to step around the librarian's table with other librarians from around Utah to talk about books, children, life, and the library. Today, we have a couple of Mark's colleagues at the Orem Library, Matt and Nathan, here to talk about makerspaces and what they have available for their community. What is this thing, makerspace? Tell tell us what your thoughts are. How do you define it? Sure. So um, a makerspace is something that we're seeing pop up in public libraries and community centers and schools all over the country. Um, The maker movement uh, is kind of a a larger um, movement uh, to create uh, creative labs um, in communities where where the public can have access to equipment, tools, and other resources just to make things that, uh, you know, might be um, out of – you know, the realm of possibility for people due to finances or just, you know, the amount of equipment that it takes. And I mean, they really connect with technology too, right? So I think um, a lot of people, particularly in my field, when we talk about teaching, we think about makerspaces and we think about the kind of the STEM fields. But it's really kind of more than that. Yeah, you're getting into the STEAM where you're yeah. adding the art. Mm-hmm. So we do have 3D printers that people can use to make uh, – uh, mechanical projects. Uh, we had a patron come in and make a 3D printed a, a wheelchair for his dog. Uh, we had somebody else come in with a prototype for a plastic bottle that he's interested. That it folds flat. He's interested in in marketing that to uh, a few different companies and and needed to come up with a prototype. And then we also have people doing figures or fun little toys or things that they can paint and make. So it really covers a broad field of of creative endeavors. And I, I like that it runs the gamut there between uh, things that are practical and and then more artistic and not that art isn't practical because art is totally practical. But, you know, this, this sense of anything that people want to do and anything that they want to engage in. But why, I mean, why then, why then is it important for us to have these as a community, right? Because, you know, 3D printers are, you know, they're expensive, but, you know, they're getting less expensive. And and it's, you know, you can have some of these resources available. But why why do you think it's a community thing? Why is it important for libraries and communities to have these? Well, you know, I 
obviously I'm biased. Um, I'm a librarian. I totally love be public libraries. <laughs> I love public libraries. And, you know, the public libraries, we know it is one of the great American innovations. Um, and it's a pretty radical concept when you think about it. The idea that we are providing um, information, for the most part, free information to anyone in a community to use. And, um, you know, most people just think that libraries are a place for the written word. But, you know, libraries have always been on the cutting edge of technology, adding ways in which people have access to information. Um, and so, uh, you know, a makerspace is, you know, fits this mission, this idea of putting information into people's hands, um, whether that's a 3D printer or whether it's a place to record a podcast um, or record music. Um, so we think that it's just it's it's perfect because libraries um, are a place where the community can come together to to learn and um, regardless of what you know medium they need yeah and i I was a maker before I even knew that was a thing, and I was a library geek since I was a kid, so I was always checking out books on composing and editing and video software and um, and i I just i th- I think Having the software that is so cost prohibitive for so many people um, and the computers that you you need and we just installed a sound booth, which is pretty expensive. Um, There are a lot of things that if I would have known a library had these when I was growing up, it would have been tremendous to just be able to go to a public place to – uh, record your own vocals or write your own album or record your own stories or edit your videos that you shot on your GoPro that you can check out. You know, the the possibilities are endless. And that's where uh, I think the community aspect comes in because we also had uh, community members volunteering their time and their expertise with the other patrons in the in the space. So we don't know all of the software and we don't know all of the equipment, but we invite the community in and they have been sharing their knowledge with each other, which is that, really cool. That's one of the things that I found that I've loved about makerspaces that I've I've read about and been a part of is this sense of it's not just about the stuff. It's about the people. And I Definitely. love that sense of bringing in the people, right, yeah. to, to to make those connections. I mean, have, have you seen that really happen? Those person to person connections? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, we have, you know, we have one regular patron who comes in and does everything from make clothes for his girlfriend to like making like this big, cool Iron Man mask, you know, Very that he's cool. like, he's, you know, piecing together piece by piece. And, uh, you know, he has a lot of uh, expertise in these broad ranges. So, you know, I've seen him help people, you know, thread the sewing machine or like, you know, tell them like, oh, maybe you, sh- you should try this, you know? And, and yeah. so it's, it's really cool. And he learned the vinyl cutting machine. So then he was helping another patron. And then when he was working on the desk, we didn't know how to load the serger sewing machine. <laughs> yeah. So he just he just turned around to a patron and said, do you happen to know how to load a serger? And she's, oh, yes, I do. And came right yeah. over and showed him. So That is so yeah. cool. Because it really is, in my estimation, more about bringing people together than it Absolutely. is about than it is about yeah. the stuff, right? Yeah. But it's great to have the stuff uh-huh. there yeah. for people to engage yeah. in this wide range of things. So I, mean, yeah. I am using it and familiarizing myself with all of the uh, equipment, but I am not an expert in any of those things. Uh, I'm I've done uh, video editing before I went to BYU. Um, and studied film and and have done music and stuff, but the 3D printing, 3D modeling, uh, vinyl, 
th- there's been so many things that I didn't know how to do that I'm getting to learn. Very cool. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I yeah, love it. It's fun. Um, I've been able to, you know, make little like Christmas gifts or things oh, like that. Like, <laughs> as I'm trying to figure stuff out, you know, it's it's fun. Um, my my son um, plays the flute, and so uh, he loves to come in and like record himself for like demos, um, you know, for school projects, um, and you know, for auditions and that sort of thing. And and he's uh, taken an interest to like composition, and so it's cool to be able to have a place, and then to have other people, uh, including Matt, you know, who's yeah. a, who's an awesome musician who can like kind of you know give him tips and show them how to work on the uh, the uh, the software. That's really incredible. I just I appreciate you guys coming and chatting with us today and opening our eyes to to what's potential to maker spaces in our community. Thanks so much. Oh, it's our pleasure. Thank you. I'd like to thank Matt and Nathan for coming around the librarian's table today. It's been a pleasure to speak with all of my guests, and I hope you've enjoyed listening. Our first guest was Ariane de Beauvoisin, and we talked about the importance of spirituality for our children. After that, we heard from Randy Evanson, and we talked about how he approaches storytelling. Our last guest was Mark Pullum, and we talked about finding the right book. If you've missed any of today's show, or if you want to listen to it again, you can find it on the BYU Radio app or byuradio.org, as well as on most podcast apps and websites. If you want to know more about what we do here at Worlds Awaiting, feel free to follow our Instagram at Worlds Awaiting. This has been a production of BYU Radio. Our producer is Cole Wissinger. Our student production assistant is Natalie Anderson. And our technical advisor is Tanner Rawl. I'm Rachel Wadham, looking forward to the worlds that are waiting for us next week. Thank you for exploring with us.